0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. Today's episode is about Ivan or Ivan Turgenev's classic novel, Fathers and Children, uh, often translated Fathers and Sons. There's a new translation of this book out from MYRB Books, and I can tell you the translation is wonderful. And I'm going to be joined by the translators, uh, Maya Slater and Nicholas Pasternak Slater. But before they join me, I'd like to explain why I'm doing this novel that's not even about anarchism on the show by giving you some intellectual and historical background on the novel the moment it was written and its connection to anarchism. The first thing to understand is that I haven't really covered the literary element of anarchism much yet, which is weird for a couple of reasons. First of all, I got my doctorate in the English department studying literature. I really studied the history of ideas more than literature, but let me tell you, I have studied a great deal and primarily taught literature and writing. So it makes sense to cover literature from my background. More importantly, although anarchism as a political movement and as a political philosophy has had ups and downs, literary anarchism has not. Literary anarchism has had nothing but ups since the 19th century. I would argue that literary anarchism or artistic anarchism has been the most powerful force in literature and art since Emerson in the 19th century. You don't have to take my word for it. First of all, here is Kropotkin in his Britannica article about anarchism in 1910. It would be impossible to represent here in a short sketch the penetration on the one hand of anarchist ideas into modern literature and the influence on the other hand which the libertarian ideas of the best contemporary writers have exercised upon the development of anarchism. Anarchism, in short, has been driven by literature, and literature has been driven by anarchism. That was from 1910. Here's John Keane speaking on the BBC podcast Inner Time in 2006. Quote, I like to think of this anarchist sensibility as rather like streams that have gone underground. In art, think of Bunuel and Kafka and modernism and postmodernism. The spirit of anarchism is strongly there. Now, just using the words modernism and postmodernism, that covers well most of 20th and 21st century high art. Bunuel and Kafka, it doesn't get much bigger than them. We could add Fellini, Agnes Varda, Jean Luc Godard, the Marx brothers, Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol. You get it. All of these people are part of this underground stream of anarchism. So, most of the important figures in art since Kropotkin wrote that in 1910 have been, well, in many cases, they have been just straight-up political anarchists. But all of those figures, the dominant figures, have imbued with this spirit of anarchism. This brings us back to Fathers and Children. Now, first of all, Fathers and Children is not written in the anarchist style. It is a work of... Realism. It does not break the rules of realistic depiction the way someone like Federico Fellini does or Jackson Pollock. It also predates anarchism's crowning moment in the late 19th century. So, if anarchism as a philosophy begins with Proudhon, who, by the way, is is mentioned in Turgenev's novel, anarchism as a social movement comes after Turgenev's novel. And in so many ways, the social movement was a descendant of this social movement called nihilism, Russian nihilism. If you know your 20th century American cultural history, you can think of it as like how the beatniks in the 1950s paved the way uh, for the hippies in the 60s and 70s. It's not the same movement, and yet it shares many of the same ideas and ideals, and that, that second group of people could never have come into being without the ground laid by the first group. And nihilism was not named and popularized by the Russian nihilists themselves, but by Turgenev in Fathers and Children. Before this novel, there were thousands of educated young people in Russia who were frustrated with the country and were looking for something else, After this novel, there were thousands of educated young people who identified with an identity, a name, a social movement, nihilism. Here's an account of how this novel became sort of the grain around which nihilism crystallized from this guy. You may have heard of him, uh, Prince Kropotkin. A formidable movement was developing in the meantime amongst the educated youth of Russia. Serfdom was abolished. But quite a network of habits and customs of domestic slavery, of utter disregard of human individuality, of despotism on the part of the fathers, and of hypocritical submission on that of the wives, the sons, and the daughters, had developed during the 250 years that serfdom had existed. Everywhere in Europe, at the beginning of this century, there was a great deal of domestic despotism. The writings of Thackeray and Dickens bear ample testimony to it. But nowhere else had that tyranny attained such a luxurious development as in Russia. All Russian life, in the family, in the relations between commander and subordinate, military chief and soldier, employer and employee, bore the stamp of it. Quite a world of customs and manners of thinking, of prejudices and moral cowardice, of habits bred by a lazy existence had grown up. Even the best men of the time paid a large tribute to these products of the serfdom period. Law could have no grip upon these things. Only a vigorous social movement, which would attack the very roots of the evil, could reform the habits and customs of everyday life. And in Russia, this movement, this revolt of the individual, took a far more powerful character and became far more sweeping in its criticisms than anywhere in Western Europe or America. Nihilism was the name that Turgenev gave it in his epoch-making novel, Fathers and Sons. So that's Kropotkin discussing how Turgenev is the one who named this social movement. Before we go back to Turgenev and Kropotkin's understanding of nihilism, a word about nihilism. Nihilism means the belief in nothing. Now, true nihilism, 100% nihilism is impossible. If you believe in nothing, you couldn't eat breakfast. It's better thought of as a rejection of everything that is established. Everything that prevents you from being you and the world from being what you want it to be. In this sense, uh, nihilism is probably best associated, I would say, with Ralph Waldo Emerson. And yes, yes, Emerson is mentioned in Turgenev's novel. Emerson's German acolyte Friedrich Nietzsche probably makes the most sense of this when he distinguishes between passive and active nihilism. Passive nihilism is, is fatalism. Nothing matters at all, so I might as well not change anything. So you're just conforming to everything your society believes, even though you don't truly believe in it. That's passive nihilism. Totalitarians are often described as nihilists. And that makes sense in this passive sense. If you don't believe in anything, you might as well commit genocide, because it doesn't actually matter. Nothing matters, so it doesn't hurt to do genocide. That's passive nihilism. And that's what the Russian nihilists and Nietzsche get accused of, of not believing in anything and therefore being willing to have anything happen. But they weren't passive nihilists. They were active nihilists. They saw everything they had been taught was a lie and they decided to do something about it. This is the foundational idea in Emersonian Transcendentalism. It blossomed into existentialism in the 20th century and it became the key idea of anarchism in the late 19th century. Here's Kropotkin describing how inspiring nihilism was in his pre-anarchist days. First of all, the nihilist declared war upon what may be described as, quote, the conventional lies of civilized mankind, close quote. Absolute sincerity was his distinctive feature, and in the name of that sincerity he gave up and asked others to give up those superstitions, prejudices, habits, and customs which their own reason could not justify. He refused to bend before any authority except that of reason, and in the analysis of every social institution or habit, he revolted against any sort of more or less masked sophism. He broke, of course, with the superstitions of his fathers, and in his philosophical conceptions he was a positivist, an agnostic, a Spencerian evolutionist, or a scientific materialist. And while he never attacked the simple, sincere religious belief, which is a psychological necessity of feeling, He bitterly fought against the hypocrisy that leads people to assume the outward mask of a religion which they repeatedly throw aside as useless ballast. Art was involved in the same sweeping negation. Continual talk about beauty, the ideal, art for art's sake, aesthetics, and the like, so willingly indulged in while every object of art was bought with money exacted from starving peasants or from underpaid workers, and the so-called worship of the beautiful was but a mask to cover the most commonplace dissoluteness, inspired the nihilist with disgust, and the criticisms of art which Tolstoy, one of the greatest artists of the century, has now so powerfully formulated the nihilist expressed in the sweeping assertion. A pair of boots is more important than all your Madonnas, and all your refined talk about Shakespeare. Marriage without love and familiarity without friendship were equally repudiated. The nihilist girl, compelled by her parents to be a doll in a doll's house, and to marry for property's sake, preferred to abandon her house and her silk dresses. The woman who saw that her marriage was no longer a marriage, that neither love nor friendship connected those who were legally considered husband and wife, preferred to break a bond which retained none of its essential features. Accordingly, she often went with her children to face poverty, preferring loneliness and misery to a life which, under conventional conditions, would have given a perpetual lie to her best self. The nihilist carried his love of sincerity even into the minutest details of everyday life. He discarded the conventional forms of society talk and expressed his opinions in a blunt and terse way, even with a certain affectation of outward Roughness. Okay, I ended the quote there because I do want to mention that despite the fact that Kropotkin acknowledges roughness in The Nihilist, he says that he and his fellow nihilists thought that Bazarov, the nihilist in Turgenev's novel, is depicted a little too harshly, goes too far, is a little too rough. That's something I will talk about with the Slaters in a moment. Now it's time to welcome the Slaters. Uh, I will be serving as the expert in the history of ideas in this conversation, but they are, based on this translation, truly artists. And they are here to discuss Turgenev as an artist, and this novel as a work of art, which is expressing so powerfully and importantly, the spirit of this moment. Here's the interview with them. I mean, I would consider you artists, I would say, having having read your translation, having never read uh, fathers and children or fathers and sons before it was such a pleasure to read. I was completely swept away by the narrative and frankly by the by the language. So it is a great honor for me to have you on on everyday anarchism that thank you for joining me.
1: Well, that's very, very lovely to hear because actually, this is our first review. I mean, the, it's not actually out yet, so you know we haven't heard what people think. So thank you very much.
0: Well, there's a there's okay. a very very eminent uh, political theorist named Corey Robin who I've had on the show, and I, I don't know how he got the book, but he mentioned on his blog recently that he read it and loved it and loved your translation. So this is your second review, and I can tell you that Corey <laughs> Robin also thinks very very highly of it.
2: <laughs> thank you. Okay, well, let me start. My name is Nicholas Pasternak Slater, and I'm half Russian. Uh, In fact, my grandparents, uh, my Russian grandparents were from Odessa, so that makes them Ukrainian. Um, My mother from Moscow was the sister of the poet Boris Pasternak, who wrote the novel, Dr Zhivago. And I was brought up bilingual, And I've always had a fascination with foreign languages and with language and style in general. And after my degree in Russian at Oxford, I began to specialise in programming computers to translate, which back in the 1960s was quite an advanced thing to do.
1: And I should point out that he was doing this from Russian into English, but it was in Italy, so it was an extremely complicated translation situation. But I didn't make a career of that.
2: I retrained and became a doctor and ended up as a medical specialist in a big London hospital. During those years, I still kept up my love of languages and I translated a fair number of medical and scientific papers. But since retiring from medicine 20 years ago i've been translating russian literature and in recent times maya and i have been working together on that i find it fascinating having to adapt our translating style to different authors and making them really sound different in english with maya's active help as an editor or fellow translator. I've published works by Pushkin, Lermontov, Turgenev, Chekhov, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and others. Um, Perhaps the book we're most proud of is Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, which I've longed to translate ever since it came out in 1958. And we finally published our version three years ago. Now, Turgenev's Fathers and Children was a wonderful story to get stuck into. People have asked me whether, as a doctor, I felt any affinity with Bazarov, uh, the nihilist central character who is studying to be a doctor. Well, and that's an interesting thought, but actually, I approach the story very much as a translator, not as a fellow doctor.
1: So now it's my turn. So I'm Maya Slater and my university career was as a specialist in literary style. I'm a senior research fellow of London University. I've written several books on French writers and also published a novel myself. The American edition is called The Private Diary of Mr. Darcy. At the same time, for many years, I worked as a translator and uh, I uh, have published several volumes of literary translation. My most demanding task as a translator was to translate Molière's verse plays into English verse and I used the Alexandrine, which is the same meter as the original French. It was a very fascinating exercise. It was a bit like solving an en- endless series of very difficult crossword clues. As well as that, I've edited a number of books and translations. Editing translations is a very specialised thing. It involves scrutinising every word on the page and arguing with the translator, usually Nicholas, um, till we both feel we've got things right. It was through editing Nicholas's translations of Russian classics that I gradually became more and more involved and then have ended up as his co-translator. We had published a volume of Turgenev's short stories and novellas before, and so we were very happy to be asked more more recently to do his most famous novel, Fathers and Children. The topic of nihilism, which is what we're looking at now, was not at the front of our minds at the time, but the more we've looked into it, the more interesting it's become, particularly in the context of the work of other Russian authors. It seems, in fact, to reflect in an unusual way, the uneasy relationship between creative writers and the Russian state. And now that Turgenev has opened the way, nihilism is cropping up again. We're now translating Anna Karenina and have been fascinating to come across references to nihilism and also to anti-nihilism in Tolstoy's novel as well.
2: We come to um, me again. I'm going to, uh, well, I think a a useful way to think about nihilism for our purposes here is uh, as a rejection of all the social, religious or intellectual values which have been adopted to impose a semblance of order onto real life, which is in its essence chaotic unregulated and ultimately meaningless. Many Russian writers have been attracted by this approach and I thought it would be interesting to have a quick look at some of them. I'll start with Gogol, an early 19th century writer, whom you could regard as mostly a realist in the Russian tradition, but he's also a forerunner of a very persistent Russian interest in undermining real life by introducing the surreal. One of his famous short stories is called The Nose. It starts with a barber who cuts open his morning loaf of bread and finds a human nose inside it. To his horror, he recognizes the nose as belonging to one of his clients, Major Kovalyov. Desperately, he tries to get rid of this nose, but he can't. Meanwhile, Major Kovalyov wakes up without his nose and tries a series of absurd remedies to recover it. He reports it to the police. He puts an ad in the newspaper. He goes out searching for it through the streets. But then he actually meets his nose in the street, parading around, pretending to be a human being, wearing a smart uniform, and what's worse, the uniform of a higher-ranking official than himself. Well, it all ends happily, and truthfully, the story is just a surreal romp, uh, a joke on Gorgol's part, though it also works as a satire on the hierarchy of ranks and uniforms in the Russian imperial service. It certainly undermines the social order and conventions. You can see that if this sort of thing can happen, then the foundations of society and its hierarchical system of ranks fizzle into nothing. But in the story, nothing changes. Society goes back to where it was before. Moving forward to the latter half of the 19th century, There's the gigantic figure of Dostoevsky. He really was interested in nihilism as such. We recently translated and published Crime and Punishment, which owes a lot to his almost contemporary Turgenev, and specifically to the figure of Bazarov. The hero, Raskolnikov, is obsessed with the idea that the organisation of society is rotten and that a strong, fearless individual, a sort of Napoleon, not only can overturn and smash it, but that's his right. He recognises no laws or principles outside himself. And that leads Raskolnikov to commit his crime. He murders an old moneylender woman and justifies his deed on the grounds that she's useless and harmful. But fundamentally, his feeling is, well, why not? Why can't I? He's caught and convicted and sent to prison and exile. One of the steps of his redemption is a nightmare he has in prison, in which the human race is overcome by a plague of parasitic worms. This is Dostoevsky's vision of a world fallen prey to nihilism and I quote the microscopic creatures invaded human bodies but these organisms were spirits endowed with a mind and a will. The people they invaded went mad as though possessed Never before had people regarded themselves as so wise or been so impregnable in their view of the truth as these infected people were. Never had people been more unshakably confident in their decisions, their moral convictions and beliefs. But because they all thought differently, Nobody knew who should be judged nor how. Nobody knew how to tell evil from good. Nobody knew who should be found guilty and who acquitted. People killed one another in senseless fury. That's the nihilists. A few years later, Dostoevsky returned more directly to the theme of nihilism in his novel, The Demons, it's sometimes called The Possessed. It's a very long and immensely complicated story, but I'd just like to pick out three of the characters. Two of them are a father and son. The father, Stepan Verkhovensky, is a typical 1840s, quote, liberal along the lines of Belinsky or Herzen while his son Pyotr is a would-be revolutionary anarchist. So Dostoevsky is implicitly uh, implying that the anarchic, nihilistic, atheistic attitudes that he detested were the direct descendants of early Russian liberal thought. Pyotr, the son, dreams of overthrowing society, Causing chaos and the downfall of the whole system. And the third character, the central figure of the novel, is Stavrogin, a strong, fearless man who, after a past in which he raped and murdered an 11 year old girl, has now become totally amoral and sees himself as the potential leader of a revolutionary movement to bring about social breakdown. He has a passion for cruelty towards other people. At one point he says, I neither know nor feel good or evil. I have not only lost any sense of them, but I feel that there exists neither good nor evil. They are nothing but superstitions. That's all typical Dostoevsky. He believed in all the Christian virtues, he believed in order and goodness and sanctity, but he had a morbid fascination with moral corruption, depravity, cruelty, disorder and chaos. On a more humorous level, he wrote a short story, which Maya and I have translated as part of a collection called A Bad Business. And the story itself is called Conversations in a Graveyard. The narrator falls asleep on a tombstone and hears all the buried dead talking among themselves that they have a period of grace of some days or weeks in their graves before they become insensible and start to rot. And these dead people are thrilled with the fact that down there, No moral laws exist. They can say what they like, dream what they like. It's a sort of nihilist paradise. And what they talk and dream about is casting aside all shame, exchanging and reveling in all their disgusting carnal secrets, and mentally raping a seductive 15-year-old girl who is buried down there with them and is squealing with anticipation. That's how Dostoevsky sees the breakdown of the moral order. For him, it's the worst thing that can happen. Nihilism is something he loathes and dreads. Now, many Russian writers have been fascinated by the absurd and the impossible and the supernatural. Incidentally, the Soviets hated all that. Their ideal literature was social realism, realistic stories transfigured by grand sentiments and heroic acts so as to serve as a lesson for their readers. And one of the writers attracted by the absurd and bizarre was Yuri Tinianov. Tinianov who used those themes to produce some very comic satire. Like so many Russian writers, he disliked the meticulously over-regulated side of Russian and Soviet society and subverted it in his satirical novella called Lieutenant Kijé, which I recently translated. It's a story published in 1927, which got turned into a film and a ballet with famous music by Prokofiev. It's set in the 18th century in the reign of Tsar Paul I, the son of Catherine the Great. He was a passionate martinet, a stickler for rigid German style discipline. And in the story, An army clerk makes a slip of the pen which accidentally creates a new officer, Lieutenant Kije, who doesn't actually exist. But because the Tsar has signed the relevant order, the officer has to be made to exist. And the novella tells the story of this fictitious officer's doings, in which he is first punished and sent to Siberia, then pardoned and promoted, and ends his career as a celebrated general. It's a biting satire with some wonderfully surreal passages. Here is the non-existent Lieutenant Kijer being flogged over a vaulting horse for a minor transgression before being marched off to Siberia. I quote, The commanding officer of the regiment to which he belonged, standing in front of his troops on parade, yelled out the name of Ensign Kijé in a thunderous voice. The vaulting horse was already positioned to one side and two guardsmen had looped leather straps about it at the head and tail ends. The two guardsmen, one on either side, each holding a cat-o'-nine-tails, whipped the smooth wood while a third one counted the lashes and the regiment looked on. Since the wood had already been polished smooth by thousands of bellies, the vaulting horse did not appear to be quite empty. Although there was no one on it, In a way, it still seemed as if there was someone. The soldiers puckered their brows and watched the silent horse. And when the flogging was done, the commanding officer went red in the face and flared his nostrils as he always did. Then the straps were undone and it was as if someone's shoulders had been released from the horse. Two guardsmen approached and awaited a word of command. Leaving the regiment behind, they marched off along the road at a steady pace, rifles at the slope, casting occasional sidelong glances, not at each other, but at the empty space between them. Well, in this story, the good order of official life is precariously maintained by everyone pretending that things are not as they are, that an empty space is a real officer in command of a platoon or a battalion. On the surface, the story is a satire and parody of Tsar Paul I's obsession with militaristic order and discipline. But everyone can see that the writer has his eye on Soviet order and discipline, including the all-pervading sense of fear and dread in a tyrannical society. A later novel, my last example from the Soviet period, is Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, which never appeared during the writer's lifetime because it fell foul of Soviet censorship. It's Absurd, magical, satirical, immensely well written and it subverts Soviet good order and discipline by introducing the devil and his friends into well-regulated Soviet society. A wonderful example of this is a performance of magic tricks in a theater before a crowd of the posh Moscow bourgeoisie. The magicians, the devil and his acolytes, perform amazing tricks, doing feats of mind reading, sending banknotes fluttering down from the ceiling onto the audience, and finally handing out beautiful couture clothes to the ladies in exchange for what they're wearing. Good order crumbles, mass hysteria breaks out, as the ladies rush for the bargains. Then the magicians disappear, the audience disperses, and of course the ladies' magic dresses vanish into thin air as soon as they're out in the street. The sudden appearance of a crowd of society ladies in their underwear or nothing at all in the busy street causes a near riot years a breakdown of social norms in what was the very prudish, hidebound culture of 1950s Soviet society. And this social breakdown is used for the purpose of pointed political satire. That's my last example. I'll hand over to Maya to talk about the novel we're actually on about today.
1: Right. So I'm going back to the first explicit example of nihilism in Russia, and I want to explore how, in 1862, Turgenev in Fathers and Children presented nihilism to his contemporary readers, who were probably coming across the concept for the first time. And in particular, I've been asking myself throughout what Turgenev actually thinks of nihilism himself. And to find out, the best way seemed to be to take you right inside the novel, in the first pages, And Nicholas is going to help me with this when the time comes. So the central character of Fathers and Children is Bazarov, a medical student. And the novel starts with him dropping in unexpectedly to the country estate of his fellow student, Arkady, who's there with his father and uncle. Arkady describes him as a wonderful chap, so simple. I can't tell you how much his friendship means to me. He hero worships Bazarov, it's a kind of teenage crush that he has on him. And he says, Bazarov knows everything. The older generation, however, Arkady's father and uncle, dislike Bazarov from the start. It begins with the fact that he smokes disgusting cheap tobacco that stinks. And he's, they describe him as a hairy fellow, and he has a big bulging forehead. So he doesn't make a good impression. And then Bazarov starts talking himself and making remarks about his hosts. And we find that he is unbelievably rude. He's a guest in these people's house. This is what he says to his friend Arkady, Nicholas.
2: Your uncle, what a dandy in the depths of the countryside. Those fingernails, those fingernails. He should get them framed. A museum piece. And your father... Hasn't a clue about managing his estate. My room has an English washstand, but the door won't shut. All the same, that's something to be encouraged. An English washstand, that's progress.
1: So you could see from this that Bazarov is an unusual and difficult character. And one feels anxious from the start. Is he going to destroy the harmony of this household? Something will explode while he's there. So pretty quickly, Bazarov's nihilist philosophy actually comes in and it starts in a conversation between Arkady and his uncle, the uncle who's taken an immediate and violent dislike to Bazarov. And I want us to read you an extract from this conversation. Nicholas is going to read the part of the young man Arkady and I'm the uncle. Well, and Mr. Bazarov himself, what is he actually, the uncle asked in a drawl.
2: What Bazarov is, Arkady grinned. Would you like me to tell you, Uncle dear, what he is, actually? If you'll be so good a nephew, dear.
1: He's a nihilist. I beg your pardon. He's a nihilist. A nihilist? That comes from the Latin nihil, nothing, so far as I can tell. So that must mean a person who who accepts nothing, or rather, who respects nothing.
2: No, A nihilist is someone who doesn't bow to any authority, who doesn't take a single principle on trust, no matter how much that principle is revered. So,
1: and is that a good thing?
2: Depends who for, uncle dear. It's good for some people and very bad for others.
1: The uncle then comments sarcastically that all this is far too modern for his generation. At this stage, Bazarov's views, as described by his friend, seem like ridiculous eccentricities, and Turgenev adds to the ridicule of the portrait by making Bazarov himself turn up immediately after this conversation.
2: He was stepping over the flower beds; his cloth coat and trousers were muddy, he had some clinging waterweed wound round the crown of his round hat, and in his right hand, He carried a small sack with something alive wriggling inside it.
1: He has a sack full of frogs, which he's planning to dissect. Um, So uh, you're sort of tramping on his host's flower beds and sort of this ridiculous, muddy uh, appearance. So Turgenev is laying it on quite thick. And then in his conversations with the host, Turgenev describes his replies as brusque and offhand and says that his tone is churlish, almost impertinent. When he's asked questions, he yawns, and he only condescends to explain his, tan- his to explain his standpoint. He says he doesn't recognise any authorities. Why on earth should I
2: recognise them? What am I supposed to believe in? If someone tells me a truth, I agree with it, that's all. He says these words, with a contemptuous sneer.
1: And when Arkady timidly reproaches him later with being rude to his father, he says,
2: Why should I go
1: crawling to
2: them, these provincial aristocrats?
1: There are several early scenes in which Bazarov confronts his hosts and rudely insists that everything they stand for is pointless rubbish, but he offers nothing much instead. Here's an abridged version of the most informative quarrel Between Bazarov and the uncle, with Nicholas again reading the part of Bazarov and me doing the uncle.
2: What governs your actions? Our actions are governed by what we recognise as useful. At the present time, the most useful thing is negation, so we deny.
1: Everything?
2: Yes, everything. Everything.
1: Bazarov repeated with unutterable calm, so he doesn't lose his cool at this point. But excuse me, you deny everything, or rather you destroy everything, but one has to build too, you know. That's
2: not our business. The first thing is to clear the ground.
1: No, no, no. The Russian people are not as you imagine them. They hold tradition sacred. They are a patriarchal people. They cannot live without faith.
2: I won't argue with that. I'm even ready to concede that you're right in that...
1: But if I'm right...
2: It still proves nothing. How
1: can it not prove anything? You mean you're going against
2: your own people? So what? Am I supposed to agree with them? You talk to the peasants and despise them at the same time. Why not? If they deserve to be despised.
1: What do you mean? Who needs nihilists?
2: Whether or not they're needed
1: isn't for us to decide. Bazarov was growing angry and his face had taken on a sort of coarse coppery tinge. Firstly... We don't preach
2: anything. That's not our way. So what is it you do? Here's what we do. Not so long ago, we used to say that our officials take bribes and we have no roads and no trade and no justice in our courts.
1: Yes, yes, you're the accusers. I believe that's the word. And I agree with many of your accusations too, but... But then we realized that all that endless talk about our
2: social ills was a waste of time. All it achieves is a lot of empty noise and posturing. We saw that our bright sparks, the people they call forward-looking and reformers, were all useless. We were just messing around when it's all about our daily bread, when there aren't enough honest people around, and when the emancipation of the serfs, which the government is trying to promote, will probably do no good because our peasants, are ready to steal from themselves, just so as to poison themselves with drink in some tavern.
1: I see, I see. You've come to all these conclusions and decided not to take up anything serious yourselves.
2: And we've decided not to take up anything serious.
1: Bazarov was suddenly annoyed with himself for wasting his eloquence on this gentleman. So you confine yourselves to abuse?
2: Yes. Abuse.
1: And that's called nihilism?
2: And that's called nihilism,
1: replied Bazarov even more provocatively. The uncle narrowed his eyes. So that's how it is, he remarked in a strangely calm voice. Nihilism is supposed to relieve all our woes, and you? You're our heroes and our saviours. But why are you so hard on the other people, the reformers? Aren't you just as full of hot air as they are?
2: (laughs) Say what you like, but that's not one of our faults said Bazarov through gritted teeth.
1: Why not? Do you take any action then? Are you preparing for action? Bazarov did not reply. The uncle twitched, but controlled himself. Hmm. Action, destruction, he went on. But how can you destroy things without even knowing why? We destroy because we are a force. Miserable boy, force indeed. But remember this, you forceful men. You barely amount to half a dozen. There are millions of the others, and they won't let you trample on their cherished beliefs. They'll crush you.
2: If they crush us, they'll crush us. But don't you be too sure. There are more of us
1: than you think. So this, this is what attracts today's youths. This is what seduces the minds of innocent boys. Now all they need is to say everything in the world is rubbish, and they're home and dry. Before that, they were just blockheads. But now they've suddenly become nihilists.
2: Our argument has gone too far. I think it's best to call a halt. But I shall be ready to agree with you when you can show me a single institution in our modern life, in the family or in society, which doesn't call for total merciless destruction. Goodbye, gentlemen.
1: There you are. That's today's youth for you. There they go, our successors. Our successors repeats Arkady's father with a mournful sigh. Our turn has come, and our successors can tell us you don't belong to our generation. Swallow your pill. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about how Turgenev is presenting Bazarov's ideas here in a rather ridiculous way. But I have to add that the uncle is very ridiculous himself. I haven't concentrated on that because that's not our point, but he is incredibly old-fashioned and a, a fuddy-duddy and very pretentious. He has a scented moustache and uh, you know is, is a, a creature of the past and uh, a, a completely pointless as well, really. So, um, as I say, in the initial impression, Bazarov takes these ideas to ridiculous lengths and has become completely impossible in society. It seems simplistic. But Turgenev is not a simplistic novelist. So having established Bazarov as an almost comically rude and dismissive personality, the novelist now begins to complicate the situation and produce a much more nuanced and many-sided character, which, with much in him to admire. So we learn that Bazarov is studying medicine and is a doctor's son. He turns out to be an excellent physician and a reassuring one. There's a telling episode where Bazarov's behaviour is so outrageous that he is challenged to a duel by the uncle. He shoots and wounds the uncle in the leg, but then he immediately assumes his medical role and gives the wounded uncle first-rate treatment. One could argue that this scrupulous medical care seems to make nonsense of Bazarov's insistence that he cares for nothing and nobody, since at a basic physical level, he does care for the others. Another important complication comes when Turgenev introduces romance into the story. Bazarov falls in love and with a woman who is described as admirable as well as lovable. At a ball which he attends with a very ill grace, Bazarov meets an extraordinarily beautiful, rich, independent, aristocratic young widow. The interesting thing is that she, in return, clearly finds him fascinating. There is a very strong scene where he declares his intense and powerful feelings for her, and she is strongly tempted to throw away all her advantages in life and respond to him, but she holds back, and he then has to leave. His declaration has made it impossible for him to stay, so he does leave, but this emotional interlude has turned him into a romantic figure. And then Turgenev quickly destroys this impression when later we see Bazarov with his sweet and doting parents who hero-worship him, he remains cruelly indifferent and having been away from them for three years he comes to stay and then gets bored so he walks out on them after only three days and then finally we will see how his nihilism affects his own sense of self-preservation makes him take risks as a doctor with his own health i'm not going to tell you what happens you'll have to read the book yourselves
2: well We thought we'd end by taking a look at how Bazarov's nihilism impacts on his attitudes to uh, various aspects of contemporary life.
1: Which are brought out by Turgenev during the course of the novel.
2: So what about art and literature?
1: Yes, let's start with art and literature. So, um, (laughs) poetry. He says, a decent chemist is worth 20 poets. So um, he's totally against literature, arty, farty, charming texts and so on.
2: Painting, he says, Raphael isn't worth a brass farthing and modern artists are no better than him.
1: And then he has a particular um, knife into um, poor Arcadi's poor father. Who loves Pushkin, who is after all the father of Russian literature, wonderful poet. And this wretched man reads Pushkin. And then he even worse, he plays the cello. And this man should to give up all this rubbish at his age, says Bazarov. He's actually, I think, 41. Um, and so, you know, that he sort of negates all the arts. And he says there's no art worthwhile except for the art of making money.
2: One of the uh, interesting aspects which we've already alluded to is Bazarov's attitude to the peasants because basically he despises the whole of society, the aristocracy, the middle class, uh, the bourgeoisie and the peasants. But he does talk freely uh, with the peasants. He's free and easy with them. And he claims to be one of them himself. And sadly, the author doesn't let him get away with this, and Turgenev comments, alas, Bazarov, who claimed to know how to talk to the peasants, this self-confident man had no idea that the peasants regarded him as no more than a buffoon. And in fact, they call him a buffoon from the gentry class. So they're they're not taken in.
1: Um, I would have to say something about women. Um, uh, Although he does end up falling in love, um, he begins by being very dismissive about women's intellect. All he's interested in is their bodies. He says the only women who have original thoughts are ugly as sin. And the woman that he's going to fall in love with, he's very disrespectful um, early on. He says, whoever she may be, I haven't seen shoulders like hers in a long time. And then later, what a body. I wish I had her on my dissecting table. So he seems to regard women as interesting objects for seduction and to reject love in the romantic sense and feels that it's rubbish and unforgivable. And he's furious with himself for falling in love. Um, And I I suppose this is one of the reasons that he runs away from her.
2: One of Turgenev's um, characteristic features as a narrative writer, he loves the beauties of nature. Uh, He spends long, long passages describing the weather, a forest, the countryside. Um, Bazarov will have none of this. Um, Bazarov says, no, nature doesn't matter in your sense, nature, isn't a temple, it's a workshop, and man is a workman there.
1: I'm very um, interested in his view on human biology. Um, He he says, um, if you want to judge the whole of humanity, um, you'll find that all people are are alike, both in their bodies and minds. And what we call moral qualities are the same in everybody, too. We've all got lungs, we've all got uh, spleens, we've all got brains. And he says, all you need to judge the whole of humanity is a single human specimen. And that's all you just just look at that and you worked everybody out.
2: There's uh, the question of patriotism. Uh, You can tell in advance that he's going to have no time for that. Um, His father, the army doctor, is proud of having served his country. He got a medal. Uh, but he actually unstitches his army decoration uh, from the lapel of his jacket because he's afraid of his son being scornful about it.
1: Yes, and uh, the poor father as well um, is a religious man, and uh, Bazarov is an atheist, very, very anti-clerical. And the poor father is terrified of inviting the village priest to a meal because he thinks that the son will be absolutely furious and alienated. In fact, the son is is fine and will even um, play cards with the priest, but is annoyed because he loses at cards.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, rounding it off, um, Bazarov's own place in the scheme of things, his place in the world, uh, I'd like to quote uh, him um in in the countryside he says here i am lying by a hayrick the little area i occupy is so tiny compared to the rest of space where i am not and which has nothing to do with me and the little particle of time that i'll manage to live through is a mere nothing compared to the eternity in which I didn't live and shan't live. And yet this atom, this mathematical point, has blood circulating in it and a brain that's working, and it has its wants too. Isn't it loathsome? Isn't it pathetic?
1: That's really interesting. You can see He's drawn towards higher thoughts and higher feelings and then he realises he must reject them and he does so with violence. And he has a maxim which I think could sum him up and that is no fine sentiments. Now, Turgenev presents his character and you do kind of uh, um, feel for him a lot and and, uh, you're fascinated by him. And at the end of the novel, he has the other characters who are managing without, you see how they are when Bazarov isn't there and how they develop. And you see that his influence has completely disappeared. One of them says that he is a wild animal and they are just tame. And you see these tame animals um, with their lives and they are very settled and very happy and their lives are incredibly ordinary. And they're none the wiser for having known Bazarov. They all revert. To their previous um, standards and their previous prejudices, and they comfortably settle back into their grooves. And that is how the novel ends. It's a sort of pseudo-happy ending. So, does this imply that Turgenev is rejecting what Bazarov stands for and that his exist- or that his existence and his existence was a waste of time? And I'm not sure. I think there are h- subtle hints that the other characters are so complacent now that they've become banal.
2: Well, I would say categorically that uh, Turgenev is not judgmental. He describes, he looks at things, he describes things, and he lets them speak for themselves.
0: Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on and to discuss this novel is because I, I'm an intellectual historian. I mean, my PhD is from an English department. But my focus has always been ideas, and uh, there is a way in which my podcast and my work is, in some ways, you know, didactic. And this novel, and you've done such a wonderful job, the both of you, is not didactic in that sense. There's so many ways in which Bazarov is a a figure to be admired. There's so many ways that he is exactly. repulsive. Um, the the uncle, Nicholas, could you say the uncle's name? Just in your in your um, correct pa-
2: the The uncle is
0: called Pavel Petrovich. Pavel Petrovich, he is, in fact, and I think this is something that readers might, would miss if they're not familiar with the 19th century. He is, in fact, a new man also. The, the English washstand and all that stuff, he is a previous generation's uh, version of certainly it wasn't nihilism, but a different, a European, a, a romantic way of living. And as you say, he he is absurd. And yet the idea there's certainly no Dostoevskian sense of we must return to the old ways and a sense of strong moral order. You you are left with all of these lives being lived. Real lives being lived in this maelstrom of ideas, without, without answers, but with empathy and and beauty. And I think what you two, I think you two have shared that with, with the listeners. And listeners, please, I highly recommend reading this novel for the sense of this of this moment that sort of crescendoed into what became anarchism and all of this political. Uh, the, the political maelstrom that envelops Europe and the world after this. And, and Turgenev captures these ideas as they are percolating through real human lives and trying to make sense of this changing world. It's it's exquisite. They, thank you so much, Maya and Nicholas. That was wonderful.
1: We enjoyed doing it, I must say. It was very nice to have to look at uh, nihilism
0: it it enriched it for us as well. I mean, another, I guess the, the last thing I will say is this, you know, every, Kropotkin says that this is the novel that, you know, crystallizes that moment. And he also says that uh, Turgenev wasn't fair to uh, <laughs> Bazarov. And I think that is, again, the sense that, you know, when you when you become a, when you choose a side, when you become an actor, as Kropotkin did, of course, you're going to see things in this certain way. Whereas uh, the n- nihilism, when looked at with the grace of Turgenev becomes such a complex, admirable, frustrating, disgusting thing all, all at the same time. But thank you, Nicholas and my. Anything anything else you would like to say before we go?
2: No, thank you. I uh, I think you summed it up very well. Yes, very. yes. yes.
0: Well, this has been absolutely um, lovely. Thank you. Um, I always swore I would never read uh, Anna Karenina, but if you two are working on a translation <laughs> of it, I I I will read it and uh, and per, perhaps perhaps I can have you back on the show. Um, and we can and we <laughs> can oh, discuss well, yes, Tol, Tolstoy as well.
1: It'll yes. be about three years, I guess, before it's published.
0: Excellent. We're we're, yes. we're,
1: we're at the beginning, but we're loving it. I must say. Yes. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Okay, well I'll coffee. be I'll be looking forward to that. Yes, please do. Please do. Thank you so much. <laughs>